if my body doesn't resolve that trauma, then I stay stuck. I stay traumatized. I stay activated because my body doesn't understand that the threat has passed. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Liana. I'm Jared. And this is Hello and Goodbye. This is Hello and Goodbye. It is. Um, hello, not goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> We're the worst. <laughs> anyway, guys, um, I am super um, honored to have this guest on the show. She is really um, knowledgeable in her field. She works with eating disorder clients and mm -hmm. um, has so much knowledge around trauma and everything that has to do with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think this episode is applicable to a lot of people. Um, yeah, not just if you have an eating disorder. Absolutely. But I would say too, like, um, I think it's, I, I think it's good to sort of put that out there right at the start. Cause yeah. if you like worried about being triggered or something like there's nothing real graphic, but just that's the topic. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, that really the, the, um, just kind of summarizing it, it's, you know, it's really about trauma. Yes. It's about trauma and how trauma gets stuck in our bodies and how we cope with it. And there's a lot of, we talk about the compassionate part of just allowing ourselves the grace of, okay, well, we were just doing the best we could. Mm -hmm. And that's how we coped with it. And, um, you know, sometimes that can result in an eating disorder. And then we offer ways to, to help with that. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's not dissimilar from like a lot of other unhealthy coping things that happen, right? Like Very, yes. drug and alcohol addiction stuff and whatever, and other process addictions. And so, um, yeah, I think it's Rachel is super fun, super knowledgeable, um, and just has a really uh, awesome like lens on some of this stuff that like I, like I, I like I was like hearing and and learning a lot of stuff I'd never learned before, so I was excited about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a great interview. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for you guys to hear it. So we'll keep this short. Yep. So first of all, just head over to Apple Podcasts. Click the five stars, give us a review. It doesn't have to be this long review. You could just be like, hey, Leanna and Jared are super cool. I love Leanna's laugh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and Jared needs to say more likes. That's true, yeah. Say yeah. like more, take longer to say uh, a but really small point. <laughs> yeah. Every review helps the show grow, so we appreciate you guys for doing that. Um, and then we have a Patreon account. Yes. And the Patreon page is a way for just to kind of have a hub of how to support us financially. Mm -hmm. And it is $3 a month. You can head over to patreon.com slash podcast. You can pledge more. You can pledge less. But if we get enough pledges, we can keep the show going without sponsors. And the show will be paid for. And Jared and I can be paid. And we can just... Mm -hmm. keep doing what we love yeah the goal at this point is to like not lose money putting the show out every <laughs> every month right which is the case like it takes it takes money to sort of produce the show and host it and all of that stuff and so and right now we're doing this as a labor of love like you're putting a lot of time and work in 
And also there is a financial cost that comes with the show every month. So any little bit, if you listen, if you like the show, if you get something from it, um, we appreciate any little bit of support. And Patreon is the best way to do that. If you're in a tight place financially and can't do that, then rate and review, tell a friend, shout us out on social media, right? There's all these other things you can do. Um, just hit us up and you know, let us know if something in one of the episodes like struck a chord with you. Absolutely. Um, all of those things, you know, this is kind of why we do this show. Yes. Like connect with other people who are going through the same things and and hopefully help people, you know, in their lives. And and like help ourselves too. Yeah, and you yeah. get to be a part of the H&G hive, which is yes. like, you know, we get to, get to be a part of what we do. Um and bonus, there's bonus episodes on the Patreon, on the Patreon yeah, yeah, yeah. that you will immediately have access to if you subscribe. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, head over again patreon.com/hellongoodbypodcast. Yeah. Okay. Okay, what's happening? Why don't you go first? So, uh, we are T-minus six days until my triathlon. Well, technically, when this episode airs, we'll be on the road to Utah. Yes. So, yeah. So, so it's... Um, I'm nervous, but fine. okay. I'm... I'm nervous for you. Thank you. I'm ready, but not ready, but it's all fine. One thing I was going to... So... I also want to talk with you because it's so nice of you to come with me. And this is part of my nervousness. So I just want to have this quick processing conversation with you. But like, Are you nervous about our interaction? Well, just that, just that I want to be really, I want to put something out there, which is like, I'm going to be like a pain in the ass. I know you are. Race. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm going to be really nervous. I'm going to bring like all my own food. I'm going to like, I'm not going to like want to stop at a fun restaurant in Vegas on the way there. Like, and I'm also going to be nervous about like getting there on time. Cause I have a specific time to like check in and then they have to check over my bike and they have to do all these things. And like, and so, so I'm going to be like boring and a pain in the ass before the race. After the race, I've made us dinner reservations at like what should be like a really good restaurant. And so I'm going to be like, obviously more relaxed, but also, physically like drained know. you know so so i just like and and i i feel like i wish i could be like more fun and the trip could be more fun we could like spend a few days like doing something cool or whatever but it's going to be like okay. a little utilitarian so if you're new to the show jared and i are just friends uh-huh. we are not in a relationship yes and but we're good friends we've been doing this podcast for over a year we've been friends for over five years Six years, seven years. Um, mm-hmm. And so I volunteered to um, sabotage, uh, not sabotage. Um, sabotage. You know, to, <laughs> what's it called when I'm like, uh, just inviting myself into your space? I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, I volunteered to invite myself into your space. <laughs> uh-huh. To go with Jared to Utah. I love Utah. Uh-huh. Um, it's beautiful. And, you know, he needs someone there to like, Take him to the like, drop me off at the to take pictures. I'm amazing yeah. at pictures and social media, it's so true. I can be there for, for support. But something else about me is I'm very independent. Mm-hmm. And while you're freaking out and making all your food, I'll probably just drive myself somewhere. Great, yes, and absolutely. and I'm actually thinking Sunday morning while you're gonna be exhausted and sleeping in, I might wake up early and go on a hike. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, I think it'll be fun. It'll okay, be a good trip. Cool. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And I was thinking we could pick a book 
to listen to on the way there and back. Oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah. I'm down for that. Okay. Um, so the other thing is that I decided on one of my runs this week that I'm going to, my goal is to, because I'm not going to be the fastest person in this triathlon. What? But my goal is to be the person who has the most fun. Aww. And... Vomits the most? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe vomits the least. And so one of the things I was thinking about is like, because I was, when I was doing one of my training, uh, like mini triathlons or whatever, I was like on this trail and I you know, like was passing people. And then when I turn around, I pass them again or whatever. And like, um, you know, so I always like say hello to everybody and everything like that. And I was thinking about like, what are the, what are like funny things I can say <laughs> to people <laughs> during this triathlon? So one of them that I think is going to be one of my go-tos is like if I'm passing someone or they're passing me, I think I want to say, well, uh, let's get this money. What? <laughs> Even though there's no money involved. <laughs> so they're going to think you're a psycho? Yeah. I'm going to be like, you know, like someone's passing me, I'm going to be like, yeah, man, go get that money. Just because it'll be weird. And I'm trying to think of like, what other weird, confusing things can I say to people? So listeners, hit me up if you have. Well, they have to hit you up real quick. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Like on Friday. So by the way, follow us on Instagram at Podcast and Jared at the real Jared Rodriguez and me at underscore Leanna Joan because we'll post about it. Yeah. So we'll keep listeners. Yeah. You can follow. Yeah. Maybe we'll do live. Yeah. Yeah. So you can like follow Jared's journey Mm -hmm. um, into fatigue. Yes. No, you're going to do great. Yeah. Positive affirmations, the power of spoken word. Jared's going to kill it. I think I'm, yeah, I think I'm really, I actually like did a longer run yesterday morning and was really focusing on like, go slow and make sure you have gas left in the tank. And that's kind of like my. Make sure you don't pass gas. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole thing with like long races and pooping and there's there's a lot of stuff around that. Wait, are you going to poop yourself? No, I'm not going to poop myself. Um, yeah. Anyway. Wow, you guys vomit, poop, toots. Yeah, you're, you're getting really, the whole thing. You're really, all of them brought up by you, by the way. Um, well, so that's, that's exciting. Plan. I'm excited yeah, for you. Thanks, you're going to do great. Yeah, it'll yeah. be good. I'm excited. Yeah, good. Okay, so. What's happening in your I life? I am talking to multiple guys. Okay. Um, the people want to know. I know. So, I want to be respectful because it's current yeah right so um i'm still kind of talking with the matchmaking guy although i think he's probably seeing other people too so Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if he'll see me again what's going to happen with that but i'm open to it Mm -hmm. um if he reaches out and then i went to so i had kind of like um okay well i'll okay so i'm talking to this guy that i really 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 like Oh, yeah. Um, We haven't met yet. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. I think we talked about this in last week's episode. I can't meet him until like the second week of May. Yeah. And so it's terrifying because actually I need to like re-verbiage what I'm saying. But like, um, I really like him. And so it would be disappointing if there wasn't the Mm in-person chemistry mm -hmm, there. mm -hmm. Um. So, you know, we're trying to, like, take things as slow as possible, but it's also been kind of fun and exciting yes. and, like, a little bit of sexting and, like, mm-hmm. we just really are feeling each other and there's a connection there and 
we talk on the phone sometimes and then I've had some moments where I've had a lot of anxiety about it and freaked out and we talked on the phone and he was like, I feel like maybe it's too soon to be having conversations like that. And so then that stirred up more of my anxiety and, but he's like, right, mm -hmm. because we haven't met. Mm -hmm. and, but he's also was like, he said, um, you know, I think you sh need to trust me that I can figure out what I can handle or not. Oh yeah. You know, because I, I was in any way. That's, I love that. Cause that's like one of my go-to things if I'm dating or seeing someone is I'm like, Hey, how about you worry about you and I worry about me? Yes. You know, I feel like there's a good boundary thing. There. Yes, like, totally. You yeah, know, yeah. I think it was good on his part and mm -hmm. I know he's trying to be boundaried with his emotions. And, yep. um, so yeah, that is just like that second week of May cannot come fast enough. <laughs> Well, and it's hard because when you, it's like, to even put up like artificial barriers for yourself mm -hmm. when you're really excited about someone. I know. A, like doesn't really work. No, you know? I know. Yeah. It's yeah. A whole thing. So, so anyway, so, you know, I'll keep you guys updated with that, but our plans are to see each other ASAP when he gets out here. Um, and, but I was just experienced a lot of anxiety about it. Um, mm -hmm. it, it is triggering a lot of my insecurities of, you know, because he's not super available um, right now, which is the triggering the abandonment insecurity. Mm -hmm. And then there's some insecurity of like, well, um, am I just getting attention because of this and not Yeah, this? is it more sexual than... Yes, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. so mm -hmm. um, I was just, just having a hard time. And so... I got in the car yesterday. I was like, you know what? I haven't been to the beach in forever. So I got in the car and I drove down to Huntington Beach and I always go to the dog beach and mm -hmm. I just sat there by myself. I didn't have Olive with me. She was with my mom, but I just sat there and like read my book, The Power of Spoken Word. And I said some spoken word about things like, um, you know, um, the, the, the place the right place where I'm supposed to live is going to, it's going to happen. Like mm -hmm. I'm open to the right place where I'm supposed to live. I'm open to the right job opportunity that's supposed to come my way. I'm open to the right person mm -hmm. of whoever, whatever that looks like. Um, and I just, it was really therapeutic and just being by the beach and I had this little cute little dog, just like I was laying there and all of a sudden he was just on my towel Aww. and then he just came and cuddled with me. And it was like, the sweetest thing. That's the sweetest. I know. And his name was Charlie. I was I... going to say, does he belong to someone? <laughs> I almost took him. No. Um, but yeah, he was just so sweet. And so then I was like, okay, I'm feeling adventurous. I'm feeling kind of hungry. I brought my running clothes. I was like, I'm going to go on a run along the beach. But then I got really hungry. So like, mm. instead of the run, I like went and got tacos. Even better. <laughs> so went to this taco place that I hadn't been to in years. I didn't even know... I didn't remember what it's called. I didn't remember how to get there, but I found it. Was it Sancho's? The one no, that's like Pete's, right on the beach there? Yeah, sorry, oh. I just spit on you. It's, it's a okay. Pete's Mexican food. Oh, interesting. Not Sancho's, but it's on 5th Street. Yep, yep. Um, a little hole in the wall. Yeah. Amazing food. Really? And I got a beer, so I'm sitting there drinking a beer, eating tacos, and I start talking to this guy who had a dog. Um, and we just had a really nice conversation. He mm -hmm. was a really cool guy. And not the typical guy that I would normally go for, yeah. but I really, like, we had great conversation. We had a ton in common. He's single, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it's funny. So talking about like manifestation, right? So then I looked at his shoes. He had Nike uh, Airs on. Yeah. And I said, I really like your shoes. He's like, hey, there's like this place down the street that is selling like, because it's hard to get specific styles. Yeah. Want, right. Yeah. He's like, we can get you a pair of kicks. And I was like, okay, sure. Like, let's go down. Well, I didn't really have like $200 at the moment to spend on new shoes. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, for people who don't know, like, real, like, sneaker heads are, like, yeah, like, there's, like, certain Nikes that get released in, like, limited colors and, like, whatever. Yes. And, yeah, they're, and like, then very expensive. Yes. Yeah. Very expensive to get online um, yeah. if you want a specific color. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so we went to the place, and I found a pair. I'm like, yes, I want these. But I didn't know. So this is me, like, I'm super naive about this. I didn't mm-hmm. know. I was thinking, okay, it'd be like $100. He was like, yeah, so these are 200 which is actually kind of a steal yeah. compared to, like, what you would pay online, right? Yep. And so I was like, oh, 200 Like, I don't think. I was like, I'm so sorry, but I don't think I can do that. So then the guy was like, hey, you want to take a walk? And I was like, yeah. So we, like, walk. He's like, what's going on? And I said, I just, I, he was like, well, how about we split it? Really? Yeah. So like this stranger uh-huh. just was so nice and was just like, he's like, I, you're such a sweet person. I want to do this for you. Oh, that's so sweet. Did you, how did you feel about it? Like, how did you make the decision? Cause so, well, because that... this is not normally something that I would do. This mm-hmm. isn't really, you know, it, it, this is a big deal for a stranger. Um, especially someone who you can tell is interested in you. Yeah. Right. Um, because sometimes there's an obligation that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like from him that there was an obligation to it. You, oh, yeah. And I think that's cool. I think that's really important. Like, you got a vibe of, like, this person from everything they're saying and doing and your own gut mm-hmm. of, like, which we talk about actually yes. in the interview coming up, of, like, yeah, like, this person, like, to take him at his word. Yes. That he was being genuine and saying, like, I think you're a cool person. This is you a nice thing. Shoes. This is a nice thing I want to yeah. do for someone who's a cool person. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt I felt he was genuine. I felt he was a really cool guy. I have felt obligation from other men and I didn't feel that from him. Yeah. Um, and so I got the shoes. No, they are super cool. That was like the first thing I said to you. I, I know. It's like, today. wow, look at your shoes. Yeah. I know. It's like it was a big deal. And so then I just really enjoyed his company. I really enjoyed talking with him and we walked, it was freezing. So, um, we like, I bundled up and then we kind of walked the boardwalk and Mm -hmm. you know, he like put his arm around me and it was really sweet. I know. Oh yeah. There was like some romance there. Yeah, there is some romance happening. And I felt, I felt, I felt comfortable with it. Uh I, I think he wanted to kiss me and I was like, I'm not ready. Do wait, you said that or you kind of like body language? I said that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I said, I know you're wanting to kiss me right now. I said, I'm not ready. And he's like, that's fine. Look at you. Good boundaries. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're talking. We're texting. And I I know he wants to see me. And I'm definitely open to hang out with him again. So there's part of me now that's like, okay, I feel like he's kind of listening to the podcast now. Oh, is he? Yeah. And like, oh. I don't know if the matchmaking guy, like he, he knows what the podcast is. Mm-hmm. And then like... Hinge guy, I told, don't listen. Okay. But, like, there's part of me that feels a little... I, I'm trying not to feel guilty because what I... I know this is fine. Like, I, I'm single. 
And you're and you're being honest with being everyone. Honest. You haven't sort of said or allowed someone to believe that they're the only one you're seeing or talking to. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. How do you feel about that? It's kind of weird me talking about it though as it's going. Yes. Yeah, so that's always tough. I think you and I struggle with this is because we always want to be honest and transparent and real on the show and authentic and vulnerable and all these things. But there's some things that are like where it's like is it right to like talk about this? What is it fair to the other people involved? In blah, I know, blah. So I know. That's a tension. And then I've also been in the place where you're like, where after like many weeks or months of like, I'm not finding anyone, I'm not feeling a connection with someone. And then all of a sudden you're like feeling a connection with more than one person at once. And then that's always a weird like, well, what do I do? What are the ethics? Like, how do I do this? But I think you're. It sounds like you're being upfront and and boundaried and and giving all of these things a chance to see what develops and like right like you know there's a lot of people that we've talked to and we've had on the show who say like date more than one person at once like that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, know? and you know why why is it because it forces things to slow down. Mm-hmm. It forces you to take things slow because you can't love bomb multiple people at one time. Well, I'm sure there are people that do that, yeah. but. Um, but you know, like, so like I'm forced to take things slow with the guy that's moving here, you know, in two weeks and the other two guys don't live around here. So that automatically is going to be, you know, taking things slow. So I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm really like, was it last week I talked about the power of spoken word, that book that I was reading? Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm really trying to just be open to what can come my way and not put myself in a box. And I feel like it's just like coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, that that's happening. Yeah. That's really starting to happen. Yeah. I so I'm excited. Cool. Yeah, I'll keep you guys updated. Keep us posted. Yeah, I yeah. know. Yeah, the, the real winners in this whole love triangle are the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the shoes, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, you and the new shoes are a big winner too. Anyway, you guys, um, well, we hope you enjoy this interview and we'll see you at the end. Okay, so I am super excited to um, bring on our next guest. She is currently on the road to licensure as a mental health counselor with a focus on young adults and adolescents through both private practice and the Renfrew Center. She has most recently completed her master's degree in clinical mental health counseling while also also holding a master's degree in early childhood education. Rachel uniquely combines these two aspects of passion as a way to educate, counsel, write, and lead about the interconnectedness of trauma, the polyvagal theory, diet culture, and eating disorders, all with a mission to end the stigma around mental health, especially for younger generations. An Atlanta native, Rachel has lived and worked in Nashville for the past seven years with her husband, Koi. Rachel is the host of the fabulous The Rachel Sellers Podcast, an avid mental health blogger, a coffee enthusiast, and a lover of slow mornings and sleeping in, which is totally my jam. Please welcome (laughs) Rachel Sellers. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. That was like such a cool, like such a great bio. Thank you. Um, my best friend wrote it, actually. Um, she's really? an incredible writer. Yes, um, she's amazing. So I oh take my no gosh. credit. That's so cool. Maybe she can write one for me. <laughs> 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 
He's like, you probably can. <laughs> so yeah. funny. So, um, you know, I found you on Instagram and then I reached out to you because, you know, we, we do talk about trauma a lot on the show. Um, and we did actually have one episode specifically about trauma that Jared led for us. Um, you know, but we have never talked really about eating disorders and anxiety and how trauma, um, is, you know, intertwined in all of that. And I think it's such an interesting topic because actually, and maybe you, I'm not sure if you agree with this or not, but I think more people have eating disorders than they know. Um, I think it's very prevalent in our society today, especially with TikTok and Instagram and young girls and even Mm. young men, like what they're, Mm. you know, what they're comparing themselves to and what they feel they have to be like. So I don't know. I, I think maybe let's just start with your story a little bit of, you know, how you got into the field that you're in and why you chose to specialize in these specific um, topics. Yeah, that's love. Would love to share that. So um, my, my interest in trauma really grew out of my experience as a teacher. So it said in my bio that um, I have a master's in education. I actually used to be an elementary school teacher. I taught in inner city. Yeah, I taught in inner city Nashville for a couple of years. And that really was my first kind of like toes dip into the world of of really understanding trauma. And I was seeing it. I was seeing it in my students and their families and seeing how it impacted learning and behaviors And I was also seeing kids consistently like getting in trouble for having quote unquote meltdowns. And, and I was like, this is just, what are we doing? Like we're punishing kids for having an emotional breakdown because they've never had anyone teach them how to regulate their emotions. So I really, after my first year of teaching, just started really digging into understanding trauma. I knew that if I didn't understand it, there's no way I could really help my kids. Um, And so that kind of eventually my interest in trauma kind of outgrew my interest in teaching. Um, I realized that Mm. the things that I was reading after school and learning and wanting to help my kids with were just a lot more in line with what a school counselor (laughs) would be doing. Um, I actually, my principal looked me in the eye and he was like, Rachel, go back to school. Like he, everyone, like I, that was the path that I, that I needed to, to go down. So 2018, I went back to get my master's in mental health. And when I started the program, um, I really thought my path would be kids trauma and just kind of, you know, continuing down that path. And I continued to have this growing interest in understanding eating disorders. And a lot of that was because of my own experience. So I am fully recovered from anorexia and, um, I didn't, there's some people that, you know, battle an eating disorder and they come out and they're like, I'm going to help people through this. And for me, that really wasn't my experience. I, I think it was always kind of in the back of my head, but I always, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to do it. And I, it's when I started practicum in, while I was getting my counseling degree, I, <laughs> There was this little voice inside of my head that was like, where are my eating disorder clients though? I really want to work with those clients. Where are my eating disorder clients? Mm. And I started to kind of pivot and like, and realize, oh, this, like, this is what I need to be doing and Mm. where, and I was, I was ready. I, I, I needed to 
have, I think, a like several years under my belt of feeling really strong in recovery before I could, I think, go back into the field and work from a professional standpoint. So I kind of pivoted and pivoted away from working with, with kids and, and still work with trauma, but have kind of pivoted to more working with teenagers and young adults within the eating disorder kind of realm. Wow. That's such a, that's such an amazing like story. And thank you so much for sharing that. And it's so beautiful that you're able to take something that you experienced and now help others through that, which is, I think like not to like, I don't know. I think it's sometimes why we go through things is Mm -hmm. to help other people, you know, not to, not to, um, diminish the pain of the experience of what we go through. But um, that's just absolutely so beautiful. Do you have any remarks on that? I mean, I I don't want to uh, derail us too much, but I think, um, so I work with like students in recovery from, you know, all kinds of addictions, right? Mostly like drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, like, so you use the term like, you know, in recovery, fully recovered and everything like that. So I'm curious, like, what do you do for yourself? Like today, like, are you still, do you feel like you're still kind of like working some kind of program of recovery or how are you careful with yourself and, you know, maintaining your, um, recovery? Yeah. yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great question. So I think, you know, part of it for me is continuing to prioritize my own care. Um, Mm -hmm with eating disorders are really good at neglecting themselves, um, really good at just neglecting the, their bodies. And so for me, that's something, and, and this is notorious for mental health counselors, is that burnout is so common. And that's something for me as even being like a newer clinician in the field, there is kind of um, being younger in the field and newer in the field, there is kind of this like push, grind, grind, like until you get licensed and there's this mentality. And so part of me and like maintaining recovery for myself has been like pushing back against that um, and really saying like, no, I'm, I'm going to continue to prioritize my mental health and my care, even as I show up every day and help care for other people. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a big part of that for me um, is continuing in that, just prioritizing my own self-care and putting myself first. Um, and then I think like in a weird kind of way, like advocacy is a really big thing for me. And it's um, really like educating people about eating disorders and specifically about like this, the social components, which we'll probably dive into um, during this episode, but really kind of speaking to some of the systemic and the social factors that um that influence the development of eating disorders is actually like in a strange way, kind of also helps me maintain my recovery because those were also so many of the factors that really um, harmed me. And so speaking out about those things and providing education is also a way um, to kind of continue down that path. Mm, I love that. So beautiful. Well, Oh my gosh. I wish that we could, I feel like we could talk for two hours. (laughs) Um, because I'm also, I, I don't know. And maybe we can talk about this as we go on, but I also had an eating disorder, um, that I haven't talked a lot about on the show, but I have mentioned it before. Um, but I don't know. I feel like my, and maybe this is like a, I definitely like want to hear your answer on this, but 
I feel like my eating disorder was mild compared to um, other people. And so I don't even know if that's a thing, but um, anyway, we can get there. So I just really appreciate you being on the show and your vulnerability. And, you know, I have, you know, I listened to some episodes of your podcast and I've been um, just kind of researching you. So I want to start with trauma because trauma is kind of like the basis of where we learn to cope, right? And so take us there. Give us all you got. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, I grew up like having the very mainstream understanding of trauma, right? And that trauma is the event. Trauma is the horrible, awful, horrific things that happen to us. And I was like, okay. But then it was always like a period. Like it was like trauma is the event, period. And I was always like, okay, but post-traumatic stress, when we look at PTSD, like there's something that happens as a result of the trauma that we're not paying attention to and that we need to acknowledge. So as I started diving into reading about trauma, um, some of my like best teachers would be like Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and then Dr. Peter Levine, he's just amazing. He wrote um, Waking the Tiger. So digging into a lot of um, those kinds of books on trauma and starting to really realize that trauma is not just the event, but it's what happens to the body and it's what is created in the body because of the event that happens. And so understanding that trauma in and of itself was, was the impact, not the event So that was like my first kind of shift was like, okay, this trauma isn't just the event. It's trauma is created because this thing that happens. And if my body doesn't resolve that trauma, then I stay stuck. I stay traumatized. I stay activated because my body doesn't understand that the threat has passed. Um, And so to kind of backpedal a little bit, one of my favorite definitions of trauma, um, Dr. Resma McKinnon, this is his definition, is when trauma happens when something is too fast, too much, too soon. Too fast, too much, too soon. So when I started understanding trauma that way too, I started to understand trauma isn't just the big T traumas, have a lot of issues with the big T, little T designation um, because I think it perpetuates this idea that trauma is the event and not what's created in the body because of the event. But I started to understand, well, trauma isn't just created because of abuse. It's not just created because of horrific car accidents. Trauma is also created when I'm taking my dog on a walk and he gets off the leash and jets in front of a car and immediately trauma response, right? Um, trauma is also what is what happens in the body within our nervous systems, which I know we're going to talk about. It happens in our body to our nervous systems when something happens that is beyond my capacity to cope and something is completely overwhelming and I feel utterly unsafe in my own body. That's my understanding of trauma. Hmm. So... <laughs> I'm just curious, you know, say, so I feel like, I feel like we use trauma a lot now in our culture, 
you know, of um, like, even, you know, in talking about my own story, like, okay, well, um, you know, I went through a divorce and it was very traumatic. And then I, you know, had some really negative experiences with men and then that was traumatic. And then I had a boyfriend and that was traumatic. And it's like, it's just like trauma after trauma after trauma. So, you know, I've done things like talk therapy and, you know, meditation and working with breath work, but does that actually get the trauma out of your body or do you have to do other things like EMDR um, specific trauma work and how can it seem so overwhelming if we're constantly experiencing trauma, like, you know, the dog gets off the leash or, or, um, even food poisoning can, right. Can be traumatic yes. having an experience. Right. So if we're constantly experiencing trauma, how do we ever cope with that? How do we get past that? How does that ever get out of our bodies? We have to communicate safety to the body lots, right? So after the dog gets off the leash, we're going to take some time to like reground in our bodies and get back to a sense of regulation. So it is those daily practices of getting back into the body. And, and, you know, it's also, it's the physical sensations and it's also the emotions too. It's like, we're not going to repress the hard stuff. We're going to talk about it. We're going to be open with it. We're going to journal. We're going to call a friend. Like we're going to do the daily things I think there's a totally a time and a place for things like EMDR and somatic experiencing and cognitive reprocessing and some of the more um, uh, psychotherapeutic like trauma modalities. I think when you are looking at someone who has a history of um, trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma, which of course is going to that's subjective in and of itself, right? Like mm. in some ways, like we all have a history of trauma after trauma after Right, trauma. right, exactly, yeah. Um, and so, and that is like, right? So I think, again, it's like that both and. We're like, of course, more, the word that comes to mind is traditional, even though like EMDR is not traditional yet, but more like established therapeutic modalities for trauma, I think can be helpful across the board. Um, and I think we get to couple that with the things that we can do on our own outside of the therapy room to help communicate safety to the body. Hmm. And so I'm curious, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but so how does this show up for you in your work with your clients? That is, you know, like I'm assuming a lot of them are coming to you for like issues around eating and then, you know, so I imagine unpacking some of this is part of that, but like, how does that go? How do you kind of introduce that idea with someone that you're newly working with and those kinds of things? Yeah, it's a really, that's a great question. So, um, especially when I'm working with eating disorders, so it's, it's really my understanding that, and again, there's nuance everywhere. Um, so it, it is my understanding that dysregulation, um, trauma is what under kind of underlies a lot of eating disorder behaviors. It's, it's also my understanding that eating disorder behaviors typically function to, um, they, they're coping mechanisms. They, there are ways that people cope with the trauma that is unspeakable. Um, and that feels intolerable, right? Mm. So if I'm using, if I am using restriction and I am not having adequate intake, then how does that function? Well, I get to be obsessed with food and my brain just gets to be 
obsessing and thinking about food all day, even though I'm not letting myself consume it. So I actually don't have to think about all the things that are happening in my family system that are heartbreaking and awful because I can just become consumed with food or I can restrict to the point of just completely numbing out entirely so that I don't really even feel anything anymore because not only am I disconnected from my hunger and fullness, but I'm also totally disconnected from my emotional world. Um, so there's always a deeper function for me around how eating disorder behaviors, um, how they function, right? Um, oftentimes with my clients that are struggling with bulimia um, and have more of the binge purge behaviors, mm-hmm. it's the, the purging is often a metaphor for, I, I want this out, like get the trauma out of mm-hmm. all with these like incredibly intolerable sensations, these incredibly overwhelming emotions. And so I just want to get them out. Mm-hmm. And so there's always, I help my clients um, kind of understand, I use metaphor a lot. And, and I always kind of ask them like, how do we, if your eating disorder behavior could talk, what would it tell me? Um, about what's going on in you and what's going on in your world. Um, and so part of that is like, I'm a big, and I think this is the teacher in me, um, but I am big on, on psychoeducation in, in therapy. And I tell my clients that from the get-go, like I, I, because like, I want you to understand you. And if I can help you understand how these behaviors are functioning for you, then like, that increases your insight. And then it also helps you get deeper with yourself. And that is like ultimately what I want. Um, It's for you to understand more of how you're using behaviors as a way to cope with things that feel really, really hard. I love that. I mean, I love the, you know, like I, I shared on this podcast a while back about, you know, like, being concerned about and trying to quote unquote, like fix some of my behaviors around alcohol for a long time. And then like, as I, as I dealt with the stuff that was underneath those behaviors, like suddenly that went away, you know? Um, And so I love this kind of shifting from treating the symptoms to really like treating what's, what's causing them. Right. Um, And just that idea of like what you said about the purging, like it's so Jungian and like, you know, like the metaphor is like so powerful. I've never actually heard someone talk about eating disorder behaviors in that way. That's like super cool. What, what was the, I, maybe I missed this. Um, but you said the, the purging is kind of like, I need to get this trauma out of my body or it can be, what is the, the restriction? How does like, what's the metaphor there? Restriction is typically, um, I am, completely cut off from my emotions. I'm restricting. I'm not letting myself touch my feelings or my emotions because they're too scary. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes creates that distancing um, and serves more of like that numbing dissociative kind of stance. Um, and so it's kind of like the, um, it's more like, so if you think about um, like restrictive eating behaviors tend to be more of like the flight energy. If we're thinking in terms of like fight or flight as a trauma response, um, restriction tends to serve kind of in that flight. Like I'm fleeing, like I don't see it. It's not there Mm. uh, type thing. Um, and then, um, like binge purge responses tend to be more in that fighting. It's I'm running towards it. Like I'm going to, I'm not afraid to let, like, let's face it. Let's get it out. Um, so I often say like restrictors are more like the, the running awayers from the issue and 
the binge purging behaviors is more of like, I'm going to run towards. Got it. So the purging is almost like you're feeling an overwhelming amount of emotion. And then the, the restriction is like, you don't want to feel the emotion because it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's like, what emotion? I don't have emotion. (laughs) It's not there. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. When it's interesting because people who struggle with binge purging and bulimia tend to be highly sensitive. There's like a lot of new research coming out. Um, that's pretty cool. That kind of speaks to um, how people with bulimic behaviors tend to be really like big feelers. Like they feel everything to the nth degree. Um, like almost imp- like very empathic. Very empathic. Yeah. Interesting. Has there been? Are you familiar? Is there? Has there been like research on like aces and and ED stuff? Um, not specifically, they haven't done any studies to look at aces, um, which I think aces are so cool. Um, and I mean, they're not cool. What is aces? Our childhood experiences are not cool, but I think it's cool. It gives us language. Um, and people are like starting to talk about it. So aces stands for adverse childhood experiences. Um, mm. oh, you talked about that in yeah, the yeah. trauma episode. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're familiar. Are you familiar with Nadine Burke Harris's work? on ACEs. She wrote The Deepest Well. Oh, no. I'll have to check it out. You would love it. So she talks so much about how um, just this link between like trauma and health um, Mm. and like physical health and how ACEs in and of themselves are a risk factor for um, like certain cardiovascular diseases, like things that we tend to blame on. You just didn't eat enough kale. Um, It's like, no, like there's really a link between ACEs and adverse health. Absolutely. So what I know you had, you work with polyvagal and I want to kind of go into that um, because I'm curious about that because I, so I'm a yoga teacher and, (laughs) and I've done a a training on the nervous system um, and restorative yoga. Um, And, you know, we talked a lot about parasympathetic nervous system versus the sympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve and stimulating the vagus nerve helps stimulate the parasympathetic. But our listeners may not be aware of what those terms mean and everything. So if you could kind of like talk about polyvagal, what it means and how it relates to what you do. Yeah, I would love it. So what like from like a 10 foot view, okay, polyvagal theory teaches us about how our autonomic nervous systems work. And polyvagal theory teaches us about the importance of feeling an embodied sense of safety in our bodies. Um, So I'm going to do like a really brief, like kind of condensed version of like, what the heck is the autonomic nervous system? So you, I often tell my clients, you're not brains on a stick. You are a brain that is connected to a nervous system. Mm -hmm. So, Um, Our autonomic nervous systems are responsible for um, a lot of involuntary unconscious biological processes like heart rate, digestion, like all that good stuff that we don't consciously control. Our autonomic nervous system also acts as like our body's surveillance system. So think about like your body is biologically designed to have an inborn security system and the autonomic nervous system is always scanning for signals of either safety or danger in the environment. So this isn't 
conscious. I often tell my clients, I'm like, you don't wake up in the morning and you're like, today, I'm going to consciously scan all of my environments, including the people and their facial expressions to see if I'm safe or if they're potentially dangerous, right? Like we don't do that. Um, Our bodies and our nervous systems do it for us. And that's why um, I will tell people like, if you're it's a silly example because it's always used. But if you're on a hike and you see a bear, you don't stop and be like, hmm, I wonder what I should do to keep <laughs> Right? Like, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Our bodies respond before our brains do. And so um, the, the way that I like to explain it is that the autonomic nervous system has two branches, right? Like you said, it has your parasympathetic branch and it has your sympathetic branch. So... The word poly means more than one. Long ago, they always thought that the sympathetic branch had one response and the parasympathetic branch had another response. It was sympathetic fight or flight and then parasympathetic freeze, right? Well, a couple of years ago, like in the late 90s, um, so not a couple of years ago, late 90s, Dr. Stephen Poore just came along. He's a neuroscientist and is like stinking genius. And he basically said that there's actually a third response. So there's not just two responses. There's a third one that's been really under-researched and really understudied. And this is the safe and the social response. So you were talking about this, um, this vagus nerve, right? The vagus nerve is your, it's your 10th cranial nerve, which that's a fancy way of saying it's a long nerve that runs all the way from your brainstem to your gut. And it's a, it's a bi-directional nerve, meaning that the gut speaks to the brain, the brain speaks to the gut, right? Um, and what Dr. Porges, we always have known that that nerve was responsible for a freeze, our parasympathetic freeze. So when we are in life threat, when our bodies feel like they can't cope, that nerve is responsible for shutdown, right? Um, what he discovered was that nerve actually is also involved in this this third response, the safe and social response. And that is, um, again, so ventral vagal is the state safe and social is the response. And what this whole like theory says is that there's actually like we as humans in human connection, we have the capacity to, when we connect with each other in safe relationships, when we connect to our bodies in safe ways, we have the capability of activating this ventral vagal state, which is actually incredibly healing to the body because it creates a felt sense of safety. So our ventral vagal state is activated when we feel mindful, when we feel pre- like present moment, when we feel grounded, when we feel connected in intimate relationships, um, when we feel seen, when we feel heard, like the good, like think of the moments where you felt the most connected in your life to whether that's to relationships or like even to like a pet or outside in nature, like that sense of like, I am safe. The world is okay. I'm okay. And it's safe to be here right now. When we feel that way, it's not just our brains that are like thinking positive thoughts and thinking happy thoughts. It's that we actually have this nervous system response that is creating that felt sense of safety in the body. Does that mean? I love it. I feel really like this stuff can be really sciencey and I get nervous sometimes explaining it because 
I'm really a visual learner, like a lot. And so when I explain things without a graphic, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me, but I've also done, you know, some study on it. So, you know, I, I think maybe if our listeners, you know, if it is something that you're really interested in and you don't quite understand it, I mean, I'm sure they can Google um, yes. You know, the ventral, is it ventral Vegas? Mm-hmm. V-E-N-T-R-A-L? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I have lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So one, um, so the, okay. So I want to talk about the gut a little bit because, um, so I think the gut can mean two things and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the gut can be actual, your actual gut um, affecting digestive, uh, having digestive issues because of trauma response. Um, and then also I think the gut actually can be a metaphorical, um, or actual, like you have a gut instinct about something, um, that I think can go back and forth with the brain, right? Like your brain, like, like what you said, like looking at someone, and looking into their eyes and being like, is this person a threat or not to me? And I think your gut can often tell you. Um, and I think we so often don't listen to it. Um, and so I, I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit, you know, a little brief, maybe briefly on the gut a little bit more, because I think it's so crucial. Yeah. And I think something that I really love about polyvagal theory in particular, that it gives like real concrete science to like things that are often like gut feelings that are often sometimes associated with this like, oh, that's just like hippy dippy fluffy, like you rainbow unicorns or whatever. Like, I'm like, no, people totally all about <laughs> There's, like, real science. <laughs> like, this is not like... Like, and it, you speak to that exactly. Like there's legitimacy to gut feelings because literally the longest nerve in your body is connected from your gut to your brain. So like there's messages that are being sent all the time back and forth between those two organs, right? So if I'm sensing, if my body is sensing um, that I'm safe, this is a good relationship, like this is right, like I feel comfortable, I feel safe, then the brain's going to communicate that that to the gut. Like the gut's going to like feel good and like affirm that, right? If your gut is like, this person, like, I don't know, like I feel just a little bit uneasy. Like maybe I kind of have like a stomach ache or like whether that's in, in response to you, a person or in response to a situation, like we can all probably have said we've been in an environment where we're like, oh, this is like not, something just feels a little off here. Like maybe... I feel like a little bit unsafe, like, yeah, that's probably right. Because again, our bodies respond before our brains do. And our body, like I said, is always scanning for those cues for either safety or danger. And it's going to react depending on how it feels in that moment. And oftentimes that happens before our prefrontal cortex, our conscious brains are like, yeah, you know, I think this place is safe. I think we're good here. You know, like that happens after. Mm. And so I think that we, there's real science to say like we can trust our intuition and we can trust our gut on things. Um, Because oftentimes I think when we do that, what we're 
what we're actually doing is just tuning into cues from our environment and listening to those. Hmm. I love that so much. I, I want to, so I want to, so what you were saying about the, the ventral vagus, ventral vagal system, ventral vagal system. Thank you. Of that it stimulate or it, it base is it, is it correct when I say it kind of like fires when we're, we feel safe meditation, breathing, um, Mm -hmm. connection, um, maybe, you know, uh, um, being outside, like things like that. So is that a way to then like heal the trauma? Like that's where it comes in of like, we have to be conscious about doing those things to help move past trauma. Yes. Yes. Because that the ventral vagal is all about connection, like connection to the environment, connection to myself safe connection with others, right? Um, If you, I want you to kind of imagine like a hierarchy here, okay? So the top, think of a ladder. Top of the ladder is my ventral vagal state. Minimum of the ladder is my sympathetic state. And the bottom of the ladder is my dorsal vagal, like shutdown, collapse, right? This is the order we move down the ladder when we experience trauma. Mm. So if I'm at the top of my ladder, Um, I feel connected. I feel mindful. I feel grounded. Um, I feel in the present. Right. And then something happens that, um, creates a sense of uneasiness, unsafety, not feeling safe in the body. We're going to jump down into that sympathetic fight or flight. Okay. Because we're going to try and resolve the threat because what the body wants is to create homeostasis. It wants to get back up to the ventral vagal state. Like that's where it feels good. So it wants to get back up there. Right. So we bump down into fight or flight. If that activation, if I can't fight with the threat or I can't run away from the threat, then my body is going to go to my, my third survival response, which is that freeze. So I'm going to drop all the way to the bottom of my ladder and I'm going to be in that I'm immobile. I'm collapsed. I'm frozen. Um, that might look like I'm dissociated. I'm depressed. I'm numb. I'm disconnected from my body. Right. So bottom, bottom of the rung, Right. And so um, this is kind of inverted a little bit. um, Mm -hmm. But in order to then complete the trauma response, then if we're all the way in our dorsal, we're shut down in our throat and freeze. We have to energize the body a little bit to climb back up the ladder into that sympathetic activation. And then eventually that's going to get us back up into that ventral vagal state of feeling grounded and mindful. Mm -hmm. Um, So that there is, if you Google the polyvagal ladder, that's like a, a an actual thing um, that is a really good visual for kind of understanding some of this stuff. Um, this is also really relevant when you talk about like completing a trauma response, right? So if we want to communicate safety to the body, then we have to do something to get ourselves out of fight or flight or out of freeze, mm. right? What happens is that, and this is very cultural, where it's grind, hustle, push through, you're so resilient, like, aka, ignore all the hard stuff and just be okay. Mm -hmm. And what happens is we get stuck, our bodies literally get stuck, and this is what I see with eating disorders, is our bodies get stuck in fight or flight 
or I'm stuck in freeze and I do not know anything other than oscillating between these two states, right? So that's where really like this exploring this ventral vagal state with clients is really powerful because I say, you've never really known this, like, or this is a place where you rarely visit because for whatever reason, and for some it's legitimate where like, if they live in a family system where they're being abused, then absolutely, like your body has to live in these self, self-preservation, self-protective states. Um, like way to go. Like our bodies are awesome. They protect us so well. Um, but also like, it's like, how am I going to help you create moments of being in and dipping into this ventral vagal energy so that you can start to teach your body that it's safe mm. and that it doesn't need eating disorder behaviors to cope with the trauma that you can cope in the absence of these behaviors. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And that's so cool. I, um, and I'm curious, like sort of what this looks like in ways that you sort of teach this and, and lead your clients through these kinds of things, because something I don't remember who I heard talking about this on a podcast or something like that, but that, um, like rabbits, right. Have you heard this? Like when they escape a predator or something like that, then they do this thing where they just like sit there and shake for like yes. a minute or two straight. Oh, I've heard that before of like shaking to get whatever it is out of your body. Yeah. And, and, and that, yeah. And there's a, yeah. So yeah. Ta- I don't, yeah talk, talk about, about that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Guys, when I first read about this, I was like, this is so freaking cool. And then it's funny because a lot of this stuff is still like, not like it's not widely accepted. Right. Like people are like, mm-hmm. what? Like, and I also work with teenagers. So they're like, you're telling me you want me to like get up and shake. And I'm like, yes, I am. Um, but I think that it is anyways, the stuff is still not mainstream and it can be. Yes. Um, but I love, <laughs> heard of this because oftentimes I tell this to people and they're like, I'm sorry. Like, We're all about not mainstream. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So yes. Okay. So I, I learned this from, um, in Dr. Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, he talks about this in terms of like the lion and the gazelle. So he talks about how, and this is like how he illustrates the polyvagal theory in his book. And he talks about how, like, if a lion is attacking a gazelle, right, a gazelle knows that it does not have the strength to, like, it would die, like it can't fight, right? So uh, as quick as milliseconds, right, that gazelle, as soon as it realizes it's being preyed on, it goes from ventral and it goes um, straight into sympathetic, right? Fight or flight. Well, it can't fight. It can't flee. So what's it going to do? It's going to freeze. And it plays dead. That's why we see like where that phrase like playing possum comes into play. Like there are animals in the wild that if they know that they don't have a chance of survival, then them playing dead is actually the greatest chance that they're going to live. Um, and so the lion like will attack the gazelle and the gazelle will play dead. The lion will think that the gazelle is dead and like run away to go get its like clan. What do they call lion packs? Uh, pride. Pride. Yes. Okay. So go back and get their pride or whatever. So what the gazelle does is that in order to like, it goes through the trauma cycle and it literally, when you see it come out of the post-traumatic shock, it's sh- like, it shakes. And then after it shakes for a minute, it like escapes and runs off. Um, But I think it's so cool because that like it shows how our bodies come out of the trauma response. 
And a lot of times I see this with like, especially my eating disorder clients that are so disconnected from their bodies and so dissociated and disconnected from their emotions and like just very numb, very like kind of like not here kind of Um, like I am like, we have got to get some movement back into your body. Like we've got to move this through. Um, And that is, it's that movement through, I'm going to move through fight or flight in order to get back to my sense of groundedness in my body. I heard one time that someone was saying like, um, let's say you get a text from your ex or something Mm -hmm. and it, it's, it makes you go into that fight or flight, right? To go Mm -hmm. somewhere and shake for two minutes or whatever, to let that leave your body, you know, Mm -hmm. to like, whether you decide to text back or whatever you decide to do it, like, it's Mm -hmm. just a way. And I just think that's such an amazing tool. And I don't know, I knew that. And I don't know why I don't do it. I don't know. You should try it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really (laughs) <laughs> well, because there's a lot of stuff right around like the lymphatic system. There's like people who believe in like sort of bouncing on like little trampolines and stuff yeah. like that. Like to, yeah, yeah. That's so it's interesting. Funny, my ritual that I have when I leave the office at night, like before I leave is I will, I dance, like I'll put on some like song and I will like go crazy. Like I'm sure if people looked in the window, they would be like, who is this chick? But I just like go wild because when you are carrying like and listening so much to like really hard and painful stories like I know Mm. I have to get that out of my body at the end Mm. of the day otherwise it's gonna stay with me and um so that's kind of my my like shaking it off at the office yeah that's so interesting well it's so interesting I was just thinking about this like my whole life like my whole adult life like I work out after work and usually like right after work. And I'm always like, you know, I should be waking up earlier and just doing that first thing. And, and I, I think it serves that purpose a lot for me. Just like, I'm like, okay, done work into a t-shirt and shorts, earbuds in and I'm off and running. Right. And like, there's something about running more than like riding a bike where I'm sort of like just free and myself and like, there's more movement in it and more like room. I don't know. Yeah. So no, how does that look? Like, so when you take a, you know, like a typical, like sort of teenage client who's just sort of grappling with this stuff the first time, how are you introducing them to this? And like, kind of what are the practices that you suggest and and how does that go? (laughs) You know, it's a great question, especially when you work with teenagers. Um, They're, they're the best. I love it. Um, Mm -hmm. I love the challenge of it, but um, I, so I love Dr. Not doctor. She's not a doctor. Um, Deb Dana's work. She's an LCSW and she wrote the polyvagal theory in therapy. And that book has been like my polyvagal Bible in sessions with clients. So she offers, um, there, gosh, there's just so many amazing tools in there. But what I do with clients is, um, I do a lot of mapping. So, um, I know we talked kind of about that polyvagal ladder. Um, And so what I have them do is we first, like we just explore, like I do a little bit of psycho ed around like kind of the three different states. And then I have them explore like, okay, like what does it feel like when you are in ventral? Like, and we, we come at it from what are your thoughts? What are your emotions? What are your physical sensations? What are your behaviors? What are your beliefs about the world? Like, 
we, I often spend like multiple sessions, like mapping Mm -hmm. this because I'm like, I want you to fill this page, like with as much as you can. Um, Let's get really clear about what these states feel like. Let me do the same thing for each state. Um, And then we'll talk, we talk a lot then about like triggers, what triggers us into sympathetic, what triggers us into dorsal shutdown. Um, And we'll get really specific about like their specific stories, their specific home environment, things like that. Um, And then I have them kind of think through what are their glimmers. So what are the things that are the things that bring them back into their ventral vagal state? Mm. Um, So, you know, like what can they do when they need to climb up the ladder and get back Mm. and into, into feeling grounded? Um, And so that is, um, yeah, we do, I do a lot of mapping um, and psychoeducation and, and I think a lot of times what I see with teenagers and, and oftentimes this is really valid, um, is that they're, they really are stuck and they're trapped in some pretty unhealthy family systems. And mm-hmm. I think I have to be careful with working with teenagers. Like I never, ever want to like shame or condemn family systems. Like parents are doing the freaking best that they can mm-hmm. with the knowledge that they have, like 100%. But oftentimes what I see is my teens are like, the only way I can feel better is when I go to college, the only way I can feel better is if I get out of this family system. And oftentimes I think the polyvagal language kind of helps with like, I can validate that and like, yeah, it sucks. And like, but where are the areas that you can take some personal agency to making yourself feel a little bit safer in your own body and a little bit safer in your own life. And yes, we can't change this over here. Um, but what we can do is we can start to add some of these practices that are going to make dealing with this a lot easier. Um, so it, it, I mean, what I see oftentimes is they're like, this is weird. You're weird. And then eventually they're like, Oh, I make sense because I really feel like that's what polyvagal theory. Like when I started learning about it and researching and reading about it, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this, like I make sense like as a human, like, my patterns make sense the way that I am so good at creating defense mechanisms makes sense. Like, because we are wired to protect ourselves from danger. Mm-hmm. And I think when clients understand that they start to be able to maybe see some of the coping mechanisms where they previously felt shame for like adapting those coping mechanisms. And they can say like, wow, actually look at how creative I was at figuring out how to survive some like pretty shitty circumstances. Hmm. Um, right. So like, I think it, it flips the script a little bit to say um, we're all surviving and coping in the ways that we can. And let's like honor that. Let's honor that process. And then let's maybe think about what some other more adaptive ways could be of coping with the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful, compassionate way to think about things that our society tells us are like that we should be ashamed of, you know? And so like heading back into kind of eating disorders, um, you know, I'm wondering, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I'm wondering if you could briefly talk about like, you know, when do eating disorders usually develop, um, what do they look like? Is there a 
like a worse eating disorder? Is it mild versus extreme, you know? And then obviously we can talk very briefly about like how to work, you know, through that and, and out of it. Yeah. So the really sad reality is that we're starting to see eating disorders start younger and younger. Um, and so onset is typically has typically been around like 12 years old is like average onset. We're starting to see that decrease a little bit, um, Mm. to like 10, 11. Um, so as far as, you know, what are, what are some of the factors that like may contribute to eating disorders? Um, what we know is that they're biopsychosocial mental disorder, meaning that there's biological factors, there's psychological factors and their social factors that all contribute to um, an eating disorder. So genetics play actually a pretty big role um, that the research on that is like becoming more and more, there, there is a lot of research being studied on that actually, which is really interesting. Um, some of the like psychological factors, again, is going to be trauma history. Um, trauma history is a big one that puts someone at a higher risk, um, someone that struggles with self-esteem or feeling out of control, which that would also be associated with trauma, right? Um, someone that has difficulty regulating their emotions, perfectionism is a big one. Um, so some of those psychological factors make a person more at risk. And then um, social factors. Um, we said at the beginning of this episode that so many people have eating disorders that are not diagnosed or go missed. And a big part of that is the social norms and the cultural norms that we live within. Um, a society that praises and just idolizes thinness at all costs. And um, there's so much normalization of disordered eating um, that is really, really scary. Um mm-hmm. And something that I see a ton. Um, Other social factors are going to be like like people that grew up in a family with really strict food rules or um, a lot of like moralization of food. So good foods, bad foods, um, things like that within a family system can also lead to development of eating disorders. And then um, this kind of goes with that like idealization of thinness at all costs, but weight stigma and fat phobia are also huge, huge factors. So the discrimination against fat bodies in our culture is how we could do a whole podcast podcast episode on that, but yeah. um, is a really, really big factor, um, especially like what I see a lot in working with teenagers. Um, it is just the things that get said um, mm-hmm. are really, I mean, being able to trace it back to culture is not not hard. Um, so those are some of the, those are some of the factors. And then I think like something you said around like severity, um, I think there's definitely a spectrum, right. And as someone who treats eating disorders at an outpatient level, I'm always like the first thing that I I talk with families about is like, Hey, we're going to go get labs. We're going to look at, there's certain labs that we look at just to check, um, for medical stability. Like the first line of business in eating disorder treatment is, are you medically stable? Um, And so we're always looking at that. Um, And here is what's tricky, right? Is um, because of the culture that we live in, um, people in larger bodies don't get the help that they need because healthcare professionals don't take them seriously and don't take their eating seriously. Um, I had a client pretty recently, actually, um, eating around like 200 to 300 calories a day, 
um, went to the ER um, for an EKG and the emergency room doctor told her that she couldn't possibly have an eating disorder because she doesn't look as emaciated as the other girls that come in. Um, so like, this is the reality. Like, yeah, I cried. Um, and then I called the hospital. <laughs> um, but Good. like, this, yeah, like this is the reality. And I even like, Oh God, there's so much here, but like even looking at like the DSM five criteria for an eating disorder is incredibly fat phobic. Like, the fact that we're still using a, the BMI to measure severity because that's what we have to like for insurance, like insurance won't accept or like help someone in treatment if they're over their BMI or not malnourished enough. And there's just, there's so much that's flawed about that. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of my work as an eating disorder therapist is um, speaking out about some of these things and making treatment more accessible for all bodies who are struggling. And I think like kind of to speak to your point, like if we, we, we can't rely on DSM five criteria to, to say whether your eating disorder is severe or not. Like if you are consumed with thoughts about food and your body and struggling in your relationship with food, like you deserve to get help period. Like I, that's just it. Like you deserve to get help and, I, it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. Well, and I appreciate you sort of um, making the distinction that you work in an outpatient capacity, right? Because I know a lot of, a lot of, so what I understand and tell me if I'm wrong about this is there's a very long period of denial before someone is willing to go get treatment and eating disorders, like more so than maybe any other kind of process addiction or anything like that. And then you know, I, I think about this, like working with college students, like there's, there's like zero college students who will be like, I like my life isn't falling apart, but I think I need to address my drinking. Right. Cause it's so normalized and stuff. So it's kind of one or the other. It's either like the wheels completely fall off. Right. Like I failed out of school. I've ruined all of my relationships. I'm, you know, buying and hiding bottle after bottle after bottle of booze you know, and yeah. now I need to go check myself in and do, you know, and, and it seems like there's a similar trajectory for eating disorders of like, and so I would imagine like a lot of like lower level stuff goes unaddressed for like a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially working with younger, like with kids and teens, like there's a family component there, right? Because they're minors. And so um, oftentimes, even if they're saying, Hey, I have, like, I think I have an issue. Um, if the, the parents still have a lot of like misinformation around eating disorders or severity of eating disorders. Then oftentimes it's dismissed. It's dismissed. Oh, they're fine. Oh, they're fine. You know, I see that a lot of like, Oh my, you know, my 13 year old is just dieting and cutting out carbs and sugar and da da da. And I'm like, she should be growing. Mm -hmm. um, especially with working with adolescents and like their body should be growing and changing. Like that's a red flag for me. Um, so yeah, it is, it's, it's tough. And I think there is kind of a rock bottom that does happen um, before someone is willing to say like, this is a problem and I'm going to get help. Which I think is so cool that you're out here doing the work that you're doing and spreading that awareness, right? Is so that parents, teachers, <laughs> young people themselves can be attentive to 
Like we don't have to wait till the person is physically in danger or until the wheels completely fall off. Like let's recognize these things for what they are and start to work with them before like the worst possible thing happens. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I have a very, I had a very kind of similar experience where it's like, I so grew up pastor's daughter. So I had to be, I felt like I had to be perfect, went through some trauma, pretty severe trauma in junior high and early high school of um, being told I had to be a certain way. And so then I lost my best friend because of it. It was very, I'm, I'm realizing now how much like that loss really affected me. So 15, um, I was a dancer, went on my first diet um, and was counting calories, checking the scale every day. And then it got to the point where when I didn't lose weight, I was really upset. And then when I started putting weight back on because like my friends were eating sugar, so I wanted to eat sugar. Then I started going to extreme measures to try and lose the weight again. And it was obsession. And I mean, I, I wasn't ever like, um, you know, purging five times a day or restricting my calories too much, but it was a obsession. It, I mean, I was constantly like weighing myself three times a day, thinking about everything I ate, how it was affecting me. Um, yeah. I did kind of have some experience in college where I worked at a summer camp and that really helped me a lot without even realizing it. But it's still like now, even it's something that I struggle with. If I go through a really hard time or I'm going through something that puts me in a dark place, one of my first responses is to restrict my food. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and it's to check the scale and to like, I want to, well, I want to be this weight and I want to fit in these pants because if I do, I'm going to feel better mm-hmm. and I'm going to get out of this dark place. Mm. So, I know we have to wrap this up and I wish we did it. I wish we could talk to you (laughs) forever. Um, But what are, I guess, what are some things that, you know, one, if there's someone is experiencing extreme or has an eating disorder, what can they do to get help? And then also what can someone like me who is still kind of recovering and just every now and then kind of falls into that, you know, what, what can we do? Yeah. That's so great question. So if you feel like you are struggling, if you have a loved one who is, who is struggling, um, get help, like do it. Um, the longer that it persists, the harder it is to treat. And so that's why like Mm -hmm. early intervention is so important and so key. So, um, I would say like reach out to an eating disorder therapist um, there's so many ways to do that. Psychology today is a really easy one. So if you go on psychology today, you type in where you live and you can like select kind of a filter for different specialties um, and look to see, I think with eating disorders, it's really important to, to see someone who knows about eating disorders. Um, so I would say like kind of do a little homework just to make sure that who you're working with is eating disorder informed. Um, and then I think like, for people who are in kind of that, I would say more of like maybe later stages of recovery or still like struggling in certain areas around their relationship with food or their bodies. I think one of the most empowering things that we can do actually is to learn about diet culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a word that is, is really um, 
can be kind of confusing, I think. Um, and there's some, we could do a whole podcast episode on unpacking diet culture because it is everywhere. Um, but that is, uh, diet culture is essentially kind of what I spoke to a little bit in the social norms around like idealizing thinness, um, stigmatizing larger bodies, this idea that our worthiness is tied to the way that we look, the, our, the size of our bodies, all of those things. Um, and there's a $72 billion industry um, that is behind making us feel like crap about our bodies. Um, and so I think one of the most even just for myself, like one of the most meaningful things that I did for my own recovery kind of towards the end was really question these beliefs and question like, where did I learn this? And is this aligned with my values? Because I like life is too freaking short for me to live on this planet and for me to be, to get mad at myself when I go up a pant size. Like I, like we get to, I think we just get to kind of challenge, like where, where have we learned this? And is this really what I believe about bodies and about worthiness? And, um, and honestly is what we've been taught about mainstream health. Like, is there a real science behind it? Like, like let's question diets. Like let's stop putting it on ourselves and thinking like we've somehow failed and let's maybe start to to question some of the societal and systemic factors that influence us all, like having such a complicated and oftentimes disordered relationship with food. Like let's, let's get curious and let's, let's question it. So that is a big thing for me, like Google diet culture, like kind of just dig in and learn about um, some of the ways that we have been even encouraged to cultivate disordered relationships with food. Um, I think that's important. I love that. Yeah. Well, and, um, and also, right. Like you are a resource. You have a podcast now that talks Mm -hmm. on things like eating disorders and trauma and diet culture. So Mm -hmm. I want to encourage our listeners, you know, if they're like at the edge of their seat, wanting more information after this, like go follow you, listen to your podcast. Um, and like, Yes, we need to destigmatize what a, a healthy, normal body should look like. Because just to go back to what you said in the beginning, like, doesn't really matter how much kale you eat. It matters with what you're doing. Like, are you breathing? Mm-hmm. Are you exercising? Are you taking time out of your day? Like, that's probably doing better things for your body than like eating a salad versus a burger you know? And so, um, I just think that's such an important thing. And, you know, it's something that I, I want to keep learning about myself because I have my own stigmas that I need to get rid of and kind of release from my body. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. So tell us, of course, just plug yourself, all of the stuff. Where can the people find that people? You can, where can you find me? You can find me on Instagram um, at Rachel with an E-L underscore Elise, E-L-I-S-E. Um, and that my, my Instagram has like links to all my other stuff. Um, so I would say maybe go there first. Um, I also have a podcast, the Rachel Sellers podcast, um, which I have a season out already on polyvagal theory and one more that I'm blanking on currently. Eating, trauma but, eating disorders? Trauma. 
And then I'm working through the eating disorder. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, I've put a little pause in it. We have a um, 14 week old golden retriever puppy at home. (gasps) Yeah. He's been like the best thing ever, but also I'm like, Oh yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, I'm, we're, I have a couple episodes up on the eating disorder season. We'll be posting a lot more of those in future. Amazing. And for those that don't have Instagram, your website is. Um, it's Rachel with an E sellers, S E L L E R S. Um, and that yes.com. And my blog is there and I have a tons of, um, information really like I have deep dive blog posts on like everything we've touched on today. So if you want to deeper dive into any Perfect. of that. And is there an eating disorder hotline that we can plug? I should know the answer to that. <laughs> we'll put it, we'll look it up. We'll look it up and we'll put it at the outro of this episode. I yeah. know Nada has one. I just don't know it all. No, no, no. You're fine. I'll I'll cut that out and then we'll we'll just put it at the end. <laughs> No worries at all. Um, Well, Rachel, thank you so much. We just, I just adore you. You're such a sweet spirit, so knowledgeable. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. Of course. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Rachel, thank you so much. Wow. Yeah. I know. That was such a great. Such a fun conversation. Oh, my gosh. I know. Um, And guys, we wanted to offer you guys also the um, we want to say the hotline for eating uh, national eating disorders um, from, and you can go to nationaleatingdisorders.org, but the hotline Monday through Thursday, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern time, and then Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time is 1-800-931-2237. Um, they also have a chat um, option to chat via you know, online, or mm-hmm. they have a text that you can text as well, um, which is 1-800-931-2237. So, you know, if you are struggling with an eating disorder, like mm-hmm. we want to just, you to know, like we're here for you and we want to support you. And um, we just, you know, support you in your journey to, yeah. to recovery. And I think in addition to, you know, I think Rachel gave a great tip on like finding a professional who specializes in that and using psychology today. And there's a lot of other tools for that. And so, you know, the hotline is just, you know, another way. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Hello and Goodbye Podcast at underscore Leanna Joan at The Real Jared Rodriguez. Subscribe to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Hello and Goodbye Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. All of this is on our website, www.hellongabypodcast.com. Do you have anything to add? I, no. always, I feel like I always take it. I don't give you any of it. You, but, but, but you do it so well. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.